Today's sermon comes from Acts 4, 23 through 31. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, man, you guys can grab a seat. Well, maybe we should just do communion. That's a great scripture reading. I don't know if I can add so much, uh, too much to that. So thanks, man. That's fantastic. Well, good morning. I'll try to add a little bit. My name's Cameron, one of the pastors here. And it's my joy to uh, continue our sermon series in the book of Acts this morning. So if you've got your Bibles open or activate, if you haven't already, to Acts 4, verses 23 through 31. And I hope this message will be simple and practical and helpful. And the title is, How to Be a Bold Witness. How to Be a Bold Witness. i got to warn you, be transparent this morning. I ate some kind of rancid apple I found in my backpack for breakfast, so not sitting well with me. Y'all pray for me. I don't know if Sleeping Beauty or somebody dropped it in there on me, but uh, <laughs> How to Be a Bold Witness. Well, it was May of 2003, and I, I was home from college maybe like many of you, and about to start a summer job at Lowe's Home Improvement Store. No offense if you work there or you own Lowe's or whatever, but I envisioned that it would be a, a simple job where I would mainly just help little old ladies fine-tune their flower beds. Well, suddenly I realized after just two weeks of working that the job was not exactly what I anticipated or signed up for. My work shifts were spent laboring beneath a scorching sun as I loaded dozens upon dozens of railroad cross ties, bags of mulch, hay bales for landscaping companies. Well, uh, I was growing tired of that job, but then finally the straw that broke the camel's back was the day I forgot my sunscreen. If you know, if you're a ginger here this morning, that's a fatal error. And so every square inch of my exposed skin was on fire as I neared the end of another hot day under that scorching sun in East Tennessee. And then to make it worse, the Lord saw fit to send a torrential downpour at the very end of my shift as I loaded the last hour those bags of mulch. And so the day finally ended, me in the break room, shivering, sunburned, soaked, trying to do the best I could to peel off that bright red Lowe's apron. You've seen those at Lowe's, right? The red aprons people wear. 
Well, to add insult to injury, I had not previously washed my bright red Lowe's apron, not anticipating working in a rainstorm. And I made the mistake of wearing a white shirt, white shorts to work. So listen, y'all, I was a sight to behold when I left and went to my truck. Red hair, red skin, clothes dot red. If you're a Disney fan, I look just like Sebastian on The Little Mermaid, okay? Now, one of the only positives about this job was I worked with a young man named Aaron, and we formed a pretty close friendship during the two or three weeks that I was there. Uh, He was close to my age, and we had a lot in common. He hated the job like I hated it, and we both drove like these pimped out Fast and Furious, like Mitsubishi Eclipse cars. Any shout outs there? I was big into that back in the day. And uh, we both loved trout fishing. And so during one of our lunch breaks, we even planned a fishing trip together. He's going to come home with me, stay with my family. We're going to do some trout fishing. Well, as our friendship progressed, God burdened my heart in a major way to share the gospel with this young man. But I was petrified at that notion. I was a fairly new disciple and still struggling with personal evangelism. I was terrified to open my mouth and to proclaim God's word. But the more that Aaron and I's friendship progressed, the more overwhelmed I was with just this, this oughtness, this need in my bones to share the gospel with him. And so up to that point in my Christian journey, I don't think I had ever felt the spirit of conviction in such a strong way. But every time I tried to, my hands got fidgety, I got cold sweats, and there was a lump in my throat. <clears throat> I just couldn't quite get the words out. And so God gave me opportunity after opportunity, but my confession this morning is I squandered every chance I had. I made endless excuses and reason with God. Hey, I'll eventually share with him when he comes home and goes fishing with me, but the day never came. I got a better job, and then all communication with Aaron and all thought of that guy eventually just faded away. And so, City Light, I wonder this morning, how would you have responded in that moment? if you were me? Or how are you responding as you find yourself in similar circumstances throughout your normal course of life? Are you obeying the Great Commission? Are you doing all you can to share the gospel as God prompts you to do so? Or are you grieving the Spirit? So another way to ask it is, are you boldly proclaiming or are you fearfully relenting in the face of pressure? Well, in today's text, as opposed to fearing man, we find the early church, the early apostles here, trusting and revering God. Now, as we've studied thus far, God was working powerfully through their ministry. Literally, thousands of people were coming to faith in Jesus, but this revolution was not sitting well with the religious establishment. And so the temple officials and the Sadducees, they were incensed, weren't they, that Peter and John were teaching that Jesus rose from the dead, that he was the only way to heaven, and they were giving Christ the credit for healing the lame beggar back in chapter 3. Gavin, I think, preached about that last week. So Peter and John were arrested, but the religious leaders were in a really tight spot. They wanted to punish them, but they could not deny, because he was on his two feet, that the lame man had been healed. And all the people in the community were rejoicing through God's good work in this lame man. So they had no choice but to release these guys. But as they released them, they issued a stern warning. They said, hey, go out, but don't speak to anybody else anymore in the name of Christ. 
And they threatened worse if they didn't heed to their warning. So what we're seeing here in the narrative of Acts, this is the first strong taste of opposition to the gospel message that the apostles got. Now, as they return, as Peter and John return to their fellow believers with this intimidating report, we're on edge. We're wondering how will they respond? Are they going to cease and desist? Or will they continue the mission Jesus has called them to? And I wonder this morning, how are we responding? How will we respond when we get that first good taste of adversity in our Christian experience? And it will come. Well, in this chapter, in these verses, we find their answer. As opposed to cowering in fear, they beg God for boldness to continue the mission. Now think about this. They maintain their gospel proclamation in the face of persecution. And I believe by examining and then applying the various elements we see in their prayer here, that we too can be empowered to open our mouths, to get past that lump in our throat when Jesus calls us to share the gospel. So if you're taking notes in verses 23 and 24, we find the first key to being a bold witness. Very simple. Number one, live a life of worship to God. This is the ground level, the first key. Live a life of worship to God. Now notice these verses, 23 and 24. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. I mean, this is striking. As opposed to responding to the situation fearfully, they lifted their voices together in worship and they began to proclaim God and they began to exalt his glorious creative abilities in the midst of persecution. I think what's happening here is they're trying to frame their fearful situation. They're trying to process it in light of God's sovereignty. So yes, make no mistake about it. Their current situation in creation is hard. And in the face of mounting persecution, they might be tempted to think that things are out of control. So what we see them doing here is leaning into God And they're giving themselves a theological reminder here. They're saying, hey, God is sovereign. He's in control of everything. He created everything, including the very men who are threatening us, who are persecuting us. Jesus had commissioned them to live on mission. And they're reminding themselves, hey, this creator we're worshiping, he's going to continue to be with us through the person of the Holy Spirit, no matter what we face. And so I think what they're doing here, they're modeling for us, for City Lot in 2019, the posture we should all take when we face adversity, when we get a taste of persecution. You know, I don't know about you, but in my life, my temptation is when the road gets rocky to not immediately turn to God. I tend to take matters into my own hands to scramble, to be frantic, as opposed to resting the situation in my creator's hands. It's not wrong to get outside counsel, but oftentimes we get anxious and we work our way around God as opposed to going straight to our creator and resting our hearts in him. So what I'm saying is when the pressure in life gets turned up, the temptation is always going to be to worry. That's going to be the fleshly impulse. 
But here God's showing us that that first instinct should be to worship instead. And when we worship God in the midst of adversity, it frames the situation rightly. It causes us to see things from God's perspective. As we rehearse these glorious truths about God, it causes us to rest our lives in his creative and sovereign control. And so now, as it relates to advancing the gospel, a lifestyle committed to worshiping God, it gives us sustained energy and effectiveness for the mission that God's called us to. Now at this point, let me take a quick aside and give us a word about worship. Now this might be especially helpful if you're a brand new believer or a seeker and trying to figure this all out. Let me remind you that worship is not simply gathering in a building on a Sunday morning to sing songs and to hear a sermon. Worship includes that, but it's not limited to that. To give a definition for us, worship is ultimately our response to God based on what he's done for us through Jesus Christ. So as a reminder, the gospel in a nutshell is this. Our sins have separated us from God, but thankfully for the, through the person and work of Jesus, we're now brought near. Christ lived the life that we could never live, the perfect life that God requires. And he died the death that we deserve to die. And he rose again on that third day to give us the guarantee of a resurrected life. And the simple message of the gospel is that all we have to do to receive this great salvation is turn from our sins and trust in Jesus. Now, after we do that, in response to Christ laying down his life for us, out of gratitude, we go all in and we lay down the totality of who we are because Christ laid his life down for us. So what I'm saying is that worship should not just be compartmentalized on a Sunday morning. You don't check in, get brownie points with God, then check out of the building. When Christ saves us, when he redeems us, he means for us to surrender every aspect, our time, our talents, and our treasures. Now, this might sound restricting, but based on what Scripture teaches and from my, my experience, this is the only pathway to true and lasting joy. You won't find joy and contentment and peace with God to the nth degree until you go all in and lay the totality of who you are down. That's the pathway to joy. Now, as it relates to evangelism, being a bold witness... When Jesus Christ becomes our true joy, when he's our greatest treasure, we cannot help but talk about him. I love the way that Luke 6.45 says it, the way the NIV puts it. And it says it this way, for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. See, when you're enthralled about somebody or someone, you cannot help but speak about it. You know, during my single years, in my 20s, I was that guy that would roll my eyes when I got on Facebook and saw social media feeds full of pictures of people's kids. I'm like, man, you're gloating over how cute your baby is. I've seen 4,000 this week. He's not the cutest, okay? I mean, he's all right. Oh, you're astounded that your baby's finally crawling around in the floor? Well, I hate to break it to you. That's been happening since Cain and Abel came into the world. It's not that big of a deal. I mean, that's my internal dialogue. Well, then suddenly, something happened in October that changed everything. 
I became a parent. And now I find myself instinctively, no matter what conversation I'm in with a long-term friend, an acquaintance, whether they want to see it or not, they are getting the latest cute picture of baby Knox in my phone. I bring it out. It's going to happen. I can guarantee it. I don't care how many people roll their eyes. You saw this week him saying, da-da, da-da, in his high chair. I mean, I'm going to post adorable things like that because I love him. I'm enthralled by this good gift that God gave me. And so City Light, I want to say that this is the essence of evangelism. I mean, techniques and strategy, that's okay. It's good to have the bridge diagram and the Romans road and all these ways to actually articulate the gospel. But I believe when it comes to passionately sharing, proclaiming, it should ultimately be the overflow of what's in us. And not that I'm special or some like prodigy, but when I got fired up for Jesus in my 20s, nobody had to teach me how to share him. I just shared him because I loved him and because he turned my life upside down. And so a true passion for the gospel is more caught than taught. When the good gift of the gospel sinks in and resonates in your bones, it just can't help but come out of you. I like the way that the apostles said it earlier in verse 20 of this same chapter. When they were threatened, when they were arrested, they said, For we cannot but speak of what we've heard and what we have seen. They couldn't help it. It just came out of them. So let me say that there will always be a direct correlation between your intimacy with Jesus and the fervency of your evangelism. Uh, The more you're immersed in his presence the more you're rejoicing and exulting in the gospel, uh, the natural ramification will be you'll proclaim him to a watching world. So number one, and to be a bold witness, you've got to be just a genuine worshiper. It starts there. If you're lacking in boldness, you might have to just get back to ground zero and inflame your worship light. But number two, there's another key for us. Trust in the sovereignty of God. Trust in God's sovereignty especially in the face of opposition. And this comes from verses 25 through 28. So to define this, now hang with me, wake up, a little theological trip here. God's sovereignty, all that means is his complete ruling power and control over all the happenings in the world. It may seem like as we look out and see culture kind of spiraling out of control, it may seem like he's not. But the Bible maintains that God is in complete control of everything. And that's good news. We can rest in that. And in this passage, we see two examples of ways that God is sovereign. Number one, fulfilled prophecy. Fulfilled messianic prophecy or fulfilled prophecy about Jesus. And we see this in verses 25 through 26. And he says, Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said... By the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord, against his anointed. So as they come back, they're praying and they're quoting Psalm 2, 1 through 2, which they're treating as a prophecy about Jesus. This was inspired by the Holy Spirit, spoken by King David, but they're saying, hey, there's correlation here. There's fulfillment here in the New Testament. So the kings and the rulers, they correspond to Herod Antipas and Pilate, while the Gentiles and the people of Israel, 
They're the people that participated in the crucifixion. Now, in addition to this one, in case you haven't realized this, theologians believe there are over 300 prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament that have been fulfilled in the New Testament. You know, the odds are astronomical that that could actually happen. That all those prophecies could actually be fulfilled in one man, but they were. The Bible says they were. They come to fruition in this one man, Jesus, just as they were written. When I was in college and doubting my faith some and struggling if the Bible was reliable, this was one realization that caused me to regain my confidence that God's word is God's word because of all the fulfilled prophecies. Now, in the context of our passage, this fulfilled prophecy is showing us something. Suffering and persecution is to be expected. It was prophesied in the Old Testament, yet it doesn't hinder God's good plans. I'm going to say that one more time. It's to be expected for them and for us, but suffering and persecution do not hinder God's good plans. And actually, pain, suffering, persecution, they play right into God's plans coming to pass. And we see this preeminently in the crucifixion of Jesus, and we'll talk more about that in a second. So the second example, in addition to the fulfilled prophecies of God's power, his sovereignty, is his providence. Another big word for you, God's powerful providence. And we see this in verses 27 through 28. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Here's the key to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So here's the difference between God's sovereignty and his providence. God's sovereignty means, yes, he's in control over everything, but providence means he's actually involved in the world. He's ordering events. He's mysteriously directing everything, the good and the bad, to fulfill his purposes. So get your mind around this. I can't, maybe you can, while human beings were ultimately responsible and held accountable for the death of Jesus, verse 28 teaches that Christ's death was ultimately planned by God. I mean, before the foundations of the world, this was not plan B. So the actions of the people who murdered Jesus actually are playing right into God's sovereign plan. John MacArthur said it this way, Having done their worst, they merely succeeded in fulfilling God's eternal plan. Now, we can't unpack all of this, but at an everyday level, let me encourage you. This means that when we sin in 2019, yes, God will hold us accountable for our sins. There's consequences. There's discipline if you're a believer. But aren't we so thankful that our sins... Do not override the sovereign plans of God. Though we sin, when we turn from our sins, God will even use the bad parts of us to further his redemptive plan in the world and in our lives. I love the way that the eminent theologian Chris Aruska once said it. Your failure is not final. If you've not heard that sermon, go back and listen to it. One of my favorite sermons I've ever heard. Now, this mysterious wedding of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility is called 
concurrence. And all this means is as we make free choices, God works concurrently or, or parallel with our choices, the good, the bad, and the ugly, to govern the affairs of his world. Now, I'd be happy to have some Starbucks with you and tease out all this theology the best we can, but the reality is we can't wrap our minds around how all this plays together. The Apostle Paul couldn't either. He couldn't completely reconcile the tension. And so he simply cried out in Romans eleven thirty three as he processed these kind of things. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. Hey, we can't figure it out. The best we can do is just trust. Now, after that theological excursion, good job, you stayed with me. If you need to go out and smoke a Marlboro, you can do that real quick. Uh, (laughs) Excuse you. But here's what I'm trying to get you to see. If God used sinful men who opposed his will to accomplish his plans, I don't think my slides are up here. How much more willing is he to use people who love him to accomplish his plans, there we go, in the face of opposition. Let me say that one more time. If God used sinful men who opposed God to accomplish his plans, that's what we've been talking about, how much more then will he use willing men and women who love God to accomplish his plans in the face of opposition? So ground level, what I'm trying to say to you As you advance the gospel, don't be afraid of opposition. It's going to happen, so don't freak out when it comes. Keep pressing ahead in the face of it. He'll use you to further his purposes, even in the face of persecution. Now, I've shared this before, but in my 20s, I played competitive softball. That's kind of where good baseball players go to die, you know, still maintain some some level of competition when you weren't good enough to play in college, but I played a lot of competitive softball. And one reason I did so, though, I was trying to be a witness, trying to connect with my community. So my strategy was to find the drunkest and the rowdiest team I could find and get on it and somehow try to be a light. That was the plan. And you can imagine when they found out I was a youth pastor, I got some opposition from time to time. Well, I'll never forget this guy named Shorty. And the first thing I'll say about Shorty, he was not short. He was about six foot five, a brute of a man, the best player on the team. And he came hammered drunk every game. I mean, he'd get lit in the parking lot. I never knew him to be a player and be sober at the same time. So as we went along together, as we formed a friendship, when he found out I was a preacher, a pastor, he was relentless. I mean, he let me have it from both barrels. I mean, he cussed me, called me every name in the book. He made up cuss words. He just did all he could to rattle me, try to get something out of me, to try to get me to forsake Jesus the best way that he could. Well, after a couple of months of this, man, I was wearing down. I mean, the moment he saw me in the parking lot walking, hey, preacher, F you. I mean, just cussing me down, yelling me down as soon as I would walk into the game. And so I was getting weary of all this. Then one day, I kid you not, during a game, Shorty has a heart attack on the field. He's playing first base. A ground ball is hit to him, and he just falls over. I thought he was drunk at first. And it turns out he had a heart attack during the game. An ambulance came and carted him off the field. Well, I learned that he was in the hospital and stable. So I thought, hey, here's my chance. He's quiet. He's alone. (laughs) 
He's likely not inebriated, you know, so I'm going to go for it. So I went in his hospital room, and when I got there, I just cut to the chase. I said, Shorty, and his eyes were, you know, about that big. I said, man, listen, I know you don't like me that much, and you probably don't like what I stand for, but just based on your condition, I just felt like I, I just had to come and share with you how you could have your sins forgiven and have brand new life in Jesus Christ. So I was young. I wasn't that nuanced. I just went in there and kind of went for it, and As I shared, as I was unpacking the gospel, it was so obvious that God was working in his heart. Uh, He had big tears in his eyes, and when it was his turn to talk, the first thing he did, he just apologized to me. He said, man, I'm just so sorry for being an idiot, for treating the way I had the past few months. And then he just communicated how grateful he was for my visit, that that might be the first time in his life that anybody had ever shared that with him and prayed for him as he was in the hospital. And then he shared the reason for his chaos. He said the reason he was so good is that at one point in his life, he was a standout high school baseball player that got drafted. So he was on his way to the major leagues. But during like his first single A ball season, he got an injury that ruined his baseball career. And he found out through that injury that his wife had apparently only married him for money. And when she found out that he was not going to get that big league contract, she left him high and dry. And so after that divorce, his life spiraled out of control. And I kid you not, think about how God worked this out. Young, redheaded youth pastor, not, didn't know a whole lot at that point. He was now the manager of the most lucrative strip club in Lexington, Kentucky. That was his place of employment. And God allowed me in that room to share the gospel to sow good seeds in his heart. Now, I wish I could say he trusted Jesus. He did not, but I think I sowed a seed. I did the best I could in that moment. I'm trusting that God will keep watering that seed through other people and his sovereignty. And my prayer is that at some point his salvation will come to fruition. But I told that story this morning to say that that seed would have never been sown if I had not been persistent in the face of opposition. I mean, I had every reason to throw in the towel, but God just kept giving me this oughtness that, no, keep loving these men. Don't be afraid of the way they're acting. Lost people act lost. Keep pressing in with the gospel. Now, I am no evangelism hero. I'm not near the evangelist Chris is or other people in this congregation. My hands still get sweaty. I still get the lump in my throat. But in that instance, I learned that when it gets hard, keep clinging to Jesus. And when you face opposition, when you face persecution, keep trusting that God has a good plan, that he wants to save the people around us. His redemptive plans will still come to pass even in the face of opposition. So practical encouragement at this point is, as opposed to shying away from awkward family members, from co-workers you really can't stand, from irreligious neighbors like the guy Brittany across from us, the other side of the fence... We've got to just keep leaning forward, opening our mouths, and sharing the gospel. City like cling to this promise that we see in Acts 1-8, knowing it's still true for you in 2019, but, but you, I mean, fill in the blank with your name, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And by the way, he came upon you at conversion, the moment you trusted in him. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria even to the end of the earth. Amen? He'll be with us. Just go out. Open your mouth, even in the face of opposition. 
When in our text, there's a final and very elementary key for obtaining boldness and witnessing, and this one goes fast. Number three, pray for boldness. When I, when I read that, I'm like, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, that makes sense, but why don't I do that? It's pray for boldness in your witness. And we see this in verses 29 through 31. So after they praise God and remind themselves of his power, his providence, then they go to petition. They actually ask God for some things here. And notice this. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. I love this. Notice they don't ask that opposition would stop, that it would get easier. They simply say, no, give us boldness in the face of all the opposition. Verse 30, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And notice, they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And praise God that they did. We're sitting here in this room because of this moment, that they were faithful to keep speaking with boldness. See, Delight, if you're looking for a prayer that God will always answer, here's one for you. A prayer for boldness, God will always answer because it is so in line with his divine priorities in the world. I wonder very simply, when's the last time we prayed this way? Do we ever pray this way, that God would so fill us with boldness and passion that we can't help but proclaim his word? I had to ask myself this week, Cameron, when's the last time you prayed by name for people far from God that they might come to Jesus through your witness? You know, I say that we're guilty oftentimes of praying very selfish prayers, the bless me, help me, keep me prayers. And those are okay prayers to pray. God wants to be apprised of your needs. He wants us to take everything to him in prayer. But we also have to keep in mind that a primary function of your life is to take the gospel out to meet the primary need that the people in the world have, namely a remedy for their sin problem. So City Light, as demonstrated by this prayer, the way God moved on them, the way the room was shaken, the way they went out in boldness, getting over being fearful might be as simple as praying routinely for boldness in your life. Well, I want to share a heavy story with you to wrap this up, but I'm sharing this because I think it will help you, and it has helped me to always be leaning forward in boldness. In my gospel witness. As the summer of 2003 progressed, I was enjoying my new job at a country club as a golf cart boy. And my best friend worked at the swimming pool. Man, we were living our best life at that moment, I'm telling you. Um, I had like 100 Pro V1 golf balls I collected. I would barter with the cook staff to get free hamburgers. I mean, it was so much better than Lowe's Home Improvement Store. Well, then one evening... I'm growing in my faith. I'm on my way to a Bible study. I got a phone call that stopped me in my tracks. So just a few days prior to that call, in the Knoxville area, news broke that a 25-year-old college student who went by the name of Sandy Jeffers, tragically, she was stalked, she was kidnapped, and savagely murdered. Somebody took her to an overlook at the Smoky Mountains and pushed her over the cliff. 
And she was a straight-A student. And she was a bright light in the community. And she was set to graduate Tennessee the following Saturday with another undergraduate degree. Well, as I'm driving, at the other end of that phone call, a quivering voice came on and said, Cameron, what was the name of that guy you worked with at Lowe's? The one you're talking about going fishing with? I said, well, well, Chris, his name was Aaron. Aaron Skeen. He said, Cameron, Aaron's the guy who killed Sandy Jeffers. He's the very man who threw her over that cliffside. He was just arrested and confessed to the crimes. So get this, as it turns out, the exact same time that Aaron and I worked together, shared lunches together, made fishing plans to come home and stay with my family, he was stalking this young lady. And so as it turns out, our sovereign God knew what he was doing when he paired us together and he put that impulse in my heart to share. I mean, I felt it, but I was so afraid to. I didn't know this. I hadn't got to know him as well as I should, but he had dark inner turmoil that came out after the fact on social media, the early days of social media, like on MySpace, if you remember that. He had an online journal and he just shared about the brokenness he felt within. He was abused as a kid. He lived with his family members and his stepdad, he said, beat him with his fist every night when he came home. He said he felt cold and helpless and he actually, quote, said, I'm in utter darkness. I read this after the fact. And so I had the light of Jesus and I kept quiet out of fear. Now, God's grace covers everything, even my sin of omission, but I've had to wrestle with this over the years and process this and I know there's no guarantee that he would have turned, but I, but I do know this, that God was prodding me to share the gospel, and I didn't do that. And so I'm thankful that God has given me a second chance by way of a letter-writing correspondence. It's cooled off some, but a few years ago, I found out where he was at, serving a life sentence in a prison. And I began writing him, and letters came back. And I've been sharing the gospel through that medium, and He's not trusted Jesus, but again, I'm continuing to pray for fruit. So let me land the plane. Let me close by saying this. There's no accident that you live where you live, that you work where you work, that you play where you play, that you go to school where you go to school. In God's sovereignty, though we can't see it, he is sovereignly placing you around people that need the gospel. And our role in that is to be bold, to be his instrument, to open up and to intervene with the gospel of Jesus. I mean, yes, the ground will be incredibly hard at times. It'll be challenging. But I think we see here, if we just commit to worship God, if we trust in his sovereignty that he's working, though we can't see it, and if we pray for boldness, God will use us right where we're at to lead people to him. Let me pray for us this morning, then transition into some personal comments I want to make, and then we'll have communion. Let's bow together. God, this is a weighty word, but God, I wanted to share this because I think it connects to the text, but also because it's shaped who I am. Um, God, I want to be a man who's bold. I don't want to be so fearful of fear of man or trivial issues that I don't do what you're calling me to do. God, I learned that lesson with Aaron. I want to keep conducting myself as such all the days of my life. So God, help us toward this end. Oh God, may our worship be so fervent that it can't help but come out of us. 
And God, as we look around and see people that are persnickety and mean-spirited and just maybe hurtful, God, help us to see them as people apart from Jesus. And may we see the potential that they could have once they're transformed in his likeness. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.